Please open to Philippians chapter 2, and we will pick right back up where we left off, and we will, uh, we were going to see here in Philippians here in chapter 2, uh, a continuation from chapter 1 there, verses uh, 27 through 30 there, as we see here, therefore, and anytime you see the word therefore, you know you're to look back and see what's that therefore, and you will see very clearly the connection to of what Paul is continuing on. And if you remember, if you were with us last week and previous, the secret of joy, the secret of joy as we studied last, time, last week of Paul's situations in life were not perfect and rosy and, 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 and a void of all conflict. He was in a prison when he wrote these, uh, this epistle, this letter to the believers in Philippi. And as a believer, he is writing to these believers and encouraging them, even though I'm in this situation in life, these circumstances are not the what you want to, you can still have joy if you keep your mind upon Christ. And then you have to have that single-mindedness, that, that focus upon the things of, of Christ so that you can then be encouraged and lifted up by Christ to have the deep joy within. You're not always going to be happy. Trust me, around here the weather changes and some people are just really not happy. But you can still have a joy. You can still have it because you've put Jesus first, then others, and then yourself. It's not about you. And as we'll see this, Paul continues to talk and encourage or exhort those believers to get your eyes off of yourself and put them on others. Because you are in Christ, you've put and you've put your devoted your life to Christ. Now you are to live for others, and then yourself in that order. So we'll see here that the again the secret of joy, in spite of your situation, in spite of your circumstances, because you have the single mindedness on Christ, he'll he's going to bring you through this. Today we're going to see the secret of joy in spite of even people, not only in spite of the circumstances you find yourself in. But even in spite of the people that you're interacting with, we are to have this submissive, this humbled mind that we see in Christ who we follow. And we will see through the chapter 2, he's going to, Paul's going to outline four examples to us. First example we'll see today is in verses 1 through 11. Jesus Christ is our example of why we're to have a humbled mind or a, a submissive mind like Christ. Then we will see in verses 12 through 18, Paul himself is an example of someone who had a submissive mind or a humbleness about him. Then we're going to see in verses 19 through 24, Timothy, his protege, the guy who come alongside, he was discipling up. He too, because he keeps his eyes on Christ, he too had a humbleness or a submissive mindset. And finally, uh, Epaphroditus that we will see in verses 25 through 30, he's the one that brought the letter initially and the uh, gift offering, the love offering from the believers in Philippi. And this is where we find ourselves in, this, in the letter today. 
He is in the beginning talking about his who he was and, and his love for them and, and the, some history, the fact that he's the one who started that new work there in Greece, the very first church in Europe. And now we see here he's now going to exhort or encourage the believers as he sends this letter back with Epaphroditus, back, back to Philippi to encourage them about what he read in the letter or heard from those coming from Philippi. First, he heard there was good news. The good news is that they love him so much that they gave him money and offering things for help him in the ministry. It was just that his love for, because he had poured out into their lives, they were giving back to what he was doing for them. But along with good news came bad news as well in the, in the report. And the bad news had a twofold issue. One is that we will see in chapter 3 that there were false teachers starting to come in and creep in into the church body and sow badness into the body that was causing problems. Because was, as Paul was going around and God was starting using Paul to start these new works, then these people, these Judaizers, were coming along and saying, ah, Christ is fine, but you also need to be circumcised. Also, you need to follow the law of uh, Moses. You had to do this and do that, and you dress this way and dress this way. And it was all about this uniformity versus unity in Christ. And it's about unity in Christ, we will see. Paul's going to address this in the letter, and not about uniformity of religiosity. And so as we see this mindset, this humbleness, and then this letter going back, not only false teachers creeping in, but the second problem is, as we will see in chapters 3 and 4, there are some two ladies coming after each other. There was division and separation. There was a strife between two ladies. Now maybe because the ladies were arguing over who was going to be in charge of the women's ministry. Maybe it was because someone was arguing over who was going to be in charge of the hospitality ministry. Or not that any of those things happened today, only back in those days. But he's going to address the issue. But in the letter, he doesn't give us why there was division among the ladies. It's just that ladies were having some challenges. And he's going to address it and how to address, address division or separation or issues that happen within the body of Christ. Now remember, he's just going to address, yes, the outward can come in and attack a body of Christ. right? The false teachers can come out from the outside and come in and filter in and cause division and problems within the church. Which they did here, as we can see in Philippi. But you can also have challenges within the body if our minds are not singly stay focused upon who? Christ. That's what he addressed in the very first part of the letter here. Now in the second part, it's not only just about the fact that you have a single mind upon Christ, but you must be humbled, a submissive mindset, a humbled mindset, meaning you think of others before yourself. You think others, exalt others higher than yourself. And we will see, he will outline this in our verses today. So we'll start here. Philippians 2, 1 says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any aff affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minding, having the same love, being one accord and of one mind. 
So this really falls, again, it builds on verses from chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, where Paul was really encouraging him to, that your conduct is worthy of the gospel of Christ that you're sharing, that your life reflects what is truly what God has done in your life, and it shouldn't be conflictive. You shouldn't say, I'm a Christian and act like a heathen. You shouldn't say, oh, I love Jesus, but you do everything against the word of God. You over here said, oh, yes, I go to church, but you live like you're a non-church, unsaved person Monday through Saturday. He says, your conduct has to line up with what, who, who, what you're saying and, and preaching of who Jesus Christ is. It's got to be the same. But he continues this, this same theme because, yes, Christ first, Philippians chapter 1. But in chapter 2, we see others first. Joy, remember? J, Jesus first. O, others second. Y, you are last. That's how you have joy. You want to have joy in your life? Then do exactly what the scriptures are telling you to do. Put Christ first. Today we're going to focus on in the next few couple of weeks as others second and then you. And now that's the battle, is it not? Because the more, the more you think about yourself, the more miserable you're going to become. You've already been experiencing that. But now when you come to Christ and you're thinking about others, and then all of a sudden there's a joy that fills your heart that you can't even explain. Why? Because you're dead to self. The battle between the flesh and the, and the spirit, the spirit is winning. The things, the battle you have between the, the, the world and, and, and what God says, how he wants you to live, it's, that's been settled. You're going you're gonna to be obedient to the word of God and not to the things of this world. And joy will reign in your life. You'll experience peace beyond your own understanding, the Bible says. So Paul continues here and he, and he brings here, now look at this. He says, if you're... To focus, yeah, there's four things he highlights here. He says there's a consolation or there's an encouragement in Christ. If our minds are focused upon Christ, there's going to be an encouragement in Christ. Why? Because we know where our salvation comes from. We know who gives us joy, who gives us peace, who gives us the foundation we stand upon. And there's this, this encouragement in Christ that will come when you have a mindset, a humbleness of knowing he is Lord of your life. Second thing he says, he says, and there's this a comfort of love. It's a comfort of his love. It's his love that pours into your life. And recognize the love that you want and desire is not what the world gives you. It's not even what the flesh can come up with. But it's the love of Christ that will fill you that you pursue. And then we see in the, any fellowship of the Spirit, that is the fact that he's saying to the believers, this fellowship that you have in Christ is that this Holy Spirit lives in you as a child of God, and he also lives in her and her and him and them. And there's this fellowship because the, same, the Spirit that lives in me is the same Spirit that lives in you as a believer. And because of that, because of the fact that there is this encouragement in Christ of what he's done for us, his love that fills us, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit who seals us and is within us, then we see here that there's an affection and also a mercy that comes upon our lives. There's this tenderness that fills us. There's this compassion that fills us 
because of the fact that there's a consolation, a comfort, and a fellowship in Christ. He says that's what he wants us to focus in and, and be continuing. It's referred to as the if clauses. If you see that, if, if there's a consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. But when you look at the Greek condition here of this, this word, it speaks of certainty. So it's more not if, it is since we're encouraged in Christ. Since we receive the love of comfort, of love from Christ. Since we're in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that lives within you. Since there's an affection or mercy or there's tenderness, there's compassion that is poured through our lives and it affects others. Since these things, then we see in verse 3 here, we can see the fact that there is this, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Because what can really destroy verses 1 and 2 is verses 3. Verse 3 says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit or pride. That's what will destroy a relationship with others. Not only in the church, but within your family unit. Within your community. When you're so focused about selfish ambition and, or conceit, or you're so prideful of what and who you are, you think more highly and you, and you put yourself above everybody else because of God's ability to, to, to give you talents and abilities and, and accomplishments. You take ownership of that and make it of self. When it's not about self, it's about others. But notice it. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in loneliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Now, Paul's not saying that ambition is bad. Matter of fact, he wants us to be ambitious for him, <laughs> ambitious to do what he's called you to do. You're to be amb ambitious. You're not to be some sluggard. The, the Bible even warns us, don't be a sluggard playing around and sleeping on the couch and playing video games all day long, doing nothing for Christ. But be ambitious for what God's called you to do. And what happens is, when you're ambitious, the problem is, is when you take this ambition and you turn it on the motivation or the attitude onto self. I do this because I want my name above all other names, not Christ. I want, I want to achieve in the ministry what I want to achieve because this is what God has made me for. It doesn't matter if it causes division, they don't have to get over it. Because this is what I'm called to do, and that's the way it is. But you have to be very careful that what is started off as good does not turn to sin being selfish ambition outside or inside of the body of Christ. But here he's addressing within the body of Christ. So the first step here, he's saying is let nothing be done out of selfish ambition. It's not about doing it for your love, for your own desire, for your advancement, for your promotion, but it's really the, this ambition that you should have is not about self, it's about 
serving your Lord and Savior. That's the first step to keep us from having a division within the body, Paul says. Then he says also, let nothing be through conceit, which is the second step. Is This kind of unity, this, this, to keep the unity within the body, do not be conceited. Don't be so proudful of thinking too highly of oneself and having excessive self-interest or self-preoccupation. The dictionary definition of conceit is an excessively favorable option of one's own ability, importance, and wit. <laughs> I'm so funny. <laughs> I've got this ability. You need me in the ministry to be able to be successful. Oh, it's because of me that there's so many people coming to the church. See, Selfish ambition and, and conceit, this pride, is what will cause problems within the body. But he says, but no, 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 no. You're, you're to be loneliness, a humbleness that is your attitude. Your attitude of loneliness of mind. And, and, and you need to esteem others better. Die yourself and put others first. Even in Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely. I am gentle and lonely in heart, Jesus says. And what would be the outcome? And you will find rest for your soul. So even Jesus, who is our example here, was lonely in heart. If you want rest for your soul, have a humbleness of mind, an attitude in your life. We also get the words of felonious meekness and gentleness. We can see in the same scriptures about bearing the burdens of one another, bearing the load that people are under right now, coming alongside and encouraging them and helping them, pointing them back to Christ, back to getting their eyes off themselves and getting them on to others. Now, I understand the, the intrinsic oh, value of, of every human being. And so many times, People focus on so much of themselves that their pendulum swings to this, this low self-esteem kind of mentality. And every day they wake up is they think so low self-esteemed of themselves in a negative perspective. And they justify why they have this low self-esteem. And if you turn to the world, if you turn to your neighbor or you turn to anybody who doesn't know the word of God, they will immediately tell you in those counseling times that you must have higher self-esteem. Have you ever heard that before? You must have higher self-esteem. That person is on drugs. You know why they're on drugs? Because they don't have a very high self-esteem of themselves. You know why they're an alcohol problem? Because they don't have very high self-esteem. But nowhere in the Bible, my brothers and sisters, anywhere in any verse, says 
that God says for you to solve your low self-esteem is for you to start focusing on high self-esteem. No, he says you have to have the right mindset, the right attitude of understanding of who you are in Christ, that it's he who lifts you up. It's not you that lifts yourself up. You've tried to do that. You can't, you can't handle the, 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 the burden of your trying to fix yourself or handle yourself. But God says it, the fact that it's so much better to get your eyes off of yourself, get them on Christ, and put them on others. That is what lifts you up. The more you think about yourself, the more miserable you come, not giving high self-esteem, that causes you actually to tank out. You're going contrary to what the Word of God says. Because if I consider you more important than me, and you consider me more important than you, then together what happens? We mar This marvelous thing happens within the community of a church where everyone is looking up to and no one is looking down upon another. And we're all encouraging everyone. And at what Christ says about them, what Christ has done in them, what Christ is promising to do in and through them, what your future holds for you because that's what Christ did, not because of some worldly self, high self-esteem, Positive thinking, positive thinking and encourage it, and we're going we're to convince yourself. What you, the Bible says is to meditate on the truth of God and what he thinks of you. That is the solution. So not only are you to esteem others better than yourself, but verse 4, let each of you look out not only for your own interests, because we are going to look out for our own interests, you're not going to be a, a self-martyr because that's where the whole pendulum shifts. If you try and do it the world's way and your flesh way or the, or the devil's way, they're going to take you so low that you become that it's almost like a self-martyrship. That's, un, that's unhealthy. That's not right. What you need to do is focus on Christ and focus on others. And what's going to happen is, is, is Paul says, it's like the fourth step. You're going to be so focused uh, yes, making sure your basic needs and, and seeking after God to help you for your basic needs, but you're really about also the, the interests of others. You're like, Lord, what do you want me to do to help someone else in need? What do I need to do to help? I mean, mothers, you're you're you've, you're 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 put in a position where you 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 must think about your children. Right? Because they rely upon you so much and, and you will come out of that low self-esteem or that martyrship before that moment because they're in, think about it, you've taken your eyes off yourself and it's all about those children. Why? Because God called you to motherhood. It is in one of the most important ministries that God has called you to do. Just stay there. Stay focused on Christ and what he's called you to do. Focus on the others. Because then you will come out and stay out of that low self-esteem or stay out of that self-mortarship or self-deprivation kind of thing. And you'll become alive with joy and peace because you know you're doing exactly what your Lord has asked you to do. The battle is what? Staying focused throughout the day on Christ and others. 
Yes, take care of yourself, some of your interests. Make sure you're bathing. Hello. Brush your teeth. You know what I'm saying? Make sure there's food you have, you're, you're eating. <laughs> you know, there's some self-interest. Why? Because God knows we think about ourselves more than we realize how much we think about ourselves. We think in our heads, right? But he's saying the solution here, also for the interests of others. Also. Paul doesn't tell us that it's wrong to look out for our own interests, but that we should not only look out for our own interests, but we are to look the interests of others. Because if your preoccupation is all about you and pleasing yourself, oneself, it is called sin. And we are to repent and to walk away from that mindset. Now, verse 5 says, he says, now let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. So we see this, this oneness that he talked about in verses 1 through 4, or verses, you know, the first 1 and 2. And then 3 and 4, he was talking about this, this importance or this, this um, loneliness, this humbleness you need to have. And you're to, to help, be a helpfulness, to, to help others. That's what we need to do. He says, so if you if you're, have a oneness among you, you have a humbleness, a loneliness among you, if you have this, this helpfulness among you as believers in the church, then, then you're going to have this Christ-likeness, this fourth characteristic, the mindset that should be in you. And he gives us this actual example of Jesus Christ himself. He says, like this, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. And anytime you see the word in the scriptures about the mind, it's also referred to as the attitude. You know, sometimes you talk to someone and say, boy, you have an attitude. And they get really defensive. But when you say, your mindset is very different. <laughs> it basically, is, your attitude is not, is not right. You know, what is, think, what is in your mind that brings you to an outward expression of words and nonverbals that tell that what's going on in your mind? You're always asking that with your kids. It's like, what is he thinking? You know, they're over there doing something. What are they thinking? You know, because you want to know where their mindset is. Well, Paul is saying to the believers, what's your mindset? Do you want a oneness among you? Do you want to be a humbleness among you? Do you want to have a helpfulness among you? Do you desire to be Christ-likeness among you? That's the mindset Paul is saying to, to these believers. You know, We have this, and even in 1 Corinthians 2.16, says that we have the mind of Christ. That God has given us a mind, and he's renewing our mind to be able to be changed by him. By the, 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 through the word of God transforms our minds to be more Christ-like, and that's what we want in our lives. We want to be transformed. Because we want that mind in us just as also in Christ Jesus. He says in the second part of verse 6, who being in the form of God, 
And then when you see this being in the form of God, it describes Jesus' pre-incarnate existence. We must remind ourselves that Jesus did not become his existence in the manger at Bethlehem. But is eternal, he's an eternal God. He's not referring to when he said, Paul says in the form of God, he's not talking about the size and shape of Jesus, because we know God is spirit, John 4:24. But he uses many times in the scriptures human terms for us to understand to describe the characteristics and the attributes of God. For us to be able to understand. But he says the form of God, which in the, the word form means the outward expression of the inward nature. God has a form, and Jesus Christ exists in this form of God. Paul says here with is that this, this, this Greek word of morphe. Or this essence of God, this morphe, is what he's referring to as the form of God here. It's his, his incarnation, his em, embrace of this perfect humanity. He complete and absolute deity is here carefully stressed by Apostle Paul here that Jesus is God. But he came down and took on humanity. So he's a God-man. He's 100% God, 100% of humanity he took on he added to his life here and because of that and he's living this out in this time the savior's claim as he moved about during his ministry of the fact of his deity infuriated jewish leaders tremendously you go back and look at john 5 18 and cause them to accuse them of blasphemy there in john 10 33 because of that but he says, he who came being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And that gives you a flashback to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, does it not? It goes back, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So what happened here? We see here the word robbery is in the Greek or ancient Greek is a phrase that has the idea of something being grasped or clung to. Jesus did not cling to the privileges of deity when he came. He didn't also, we see morphe as another term of you'll see of empty himself. He didn't sit there and say, I'm throwing my deity away. He did not exercise his privileges being God while here on this earth. He entrusted in the power of the Holy Spirit, just like you and I, to live a, sin, a sinless life. So it wasn't that Jesus wasn't trying to achieve equality with the Father. He already had equality with the Father. He chose not to cling to the privileges that come with that. Jesus' divine nature was not something he had to seek for or acquire because he had already had it. He'd already been. So if you look from an eternity past, Jesus Christ was God. Jesus was equal with God. Go back and we just read John chapter 1 verses 1 through 5, but go Colossians 1:15 and even Hebrews 1 chapter verses 1 through 3. So 
Paul is reminding them of who Jesus Christ is and what he's doing. And he shows that he came. God came and took on flesh for you. He humbled himself for you because he loves you that much. And that's why in verse 7 he says, And he came, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. He literally, Jesus, our Savior, thought of you. He thought of others before himself. And he thought of others by coming and becoming a servant of others. Not, I'm coming so that you can serve me. I came to serve you. That's the humble mindset. That's a submissive mindset that is in Christ that we too have to have in our lives. So Paul really kind of outlines really these steps of, of humbleness of God here. Jesus, he laid, him, his, he laid aside himself the independent use of his own attributes of God. He permanently became a human in a sinless physical body. He used the body to be a servant of others. He took that body to the cross and was willing to die for you others. You remember in the upper room, the Last Supper? They get there to have a thing. There's a customary. They should have, the, the disciples should have washed Jesus' feet in the upper room. But they were still too much arguing and trying to figure out what place they want around the table. So they where they eat. So what did Jesus do? He took off his outer garment and he got his towel. And what did he do? He, in the form of a bondservant, the lowest position, he washed the feet of his disciples. Is that our mindset? Are we willing to put ourselves back and put others forward? serve them with the right attitude, with the right heart, because you serve Christ is why you do it. But Jesus did. He came in the likeness of men. He emptied himself. He became a servant. Yes, he could have come in the form of an angel, but he did not. He came in the likeness of man. Verse 8. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So we see here that Jesus became obedient, that he was something that Jesus could only express by coming down here from the throne of heaven and becoming a man. When God sits enthroned in heaven's glory, there is no one he obeys, but Jesus had to leave heaven's glory and be found in the appearance as a man in order to become obedient. And one of those key things that Jesus did by coming down and being obedient is he was obedient to suffering. That he didn't have to suffer. 
he chose to come and suffer for others. As it is written in Hebrews 5.8, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He humbled himself. He was humbled in, the, in that he took the form of a man and not some more glorious creature like an angel. He chose to humble himself to the point of coming and being crucified, a sh most shameful death that was not permitted for even Roman citizens. And these are who he's writing to in Philippi. These were Roman citizens who became believers. But he came to as a victim of crucifixion, which considered by the, even the Jews to be the most particularly cursed by God. And we see that in Deuteronomy 21-23 and Galatians 3-13. So imagine this letter coming to the believers in Philippi and they're reading these letters and, he, and Paul is saying to them, he came, Jesus came as an example of humbleness to the point of even being crucified. And these Roman believers um, are sitting there going, we wouldn't even do that to our own people. And he was willing to do that for me to save me? Yes. In verse 9, therefore. Therefore. Then what? God also has highly exalted him, Jesus, and given him the name which is above every name. See, the word describes and expresses God's intention. How God has exalted Jesus to the highest exaltion or super exalted above everybody else ever created. Because this name Jesus is connected to the divine name of Yahweh. And God declares that Jesus has a character and the person above all all. Now, it's amazing how you can have a conversation with someone in general about God. Matter of fact, if you talk about God, then many times today, most people will actually go from the word God and take it to the word higher power. Or some some energy force. Let the force be with you. And write movies about. But as soon as you declare a name that is given by God the Father to his Son to exalt his name above all names, his name is Yahweh, Jesus, what happens? It clearly defines those who are believers and those who are not. Why is that? Why is that? Why does that happen? Well, we see it in the scriptures. Because there's power behind that name. Now, is it the word Jesus? Jesus? Other cultures say Jesus. You know, is there power behind? No, it's because that name has power because of the power behind the name. 
Because that name represents God, the Lord and the Savior of the world. And that's where conflict comes into those who are not believers. And they don't even know. I Sometimes when I'm having conversations, I'm sitting here going, they really don't know why there's conflict going on in their, in their body right now, in their mind. All they know is, I don't want to talk about Jesus. I don't want to say the name. I don't want anyone to say, say the name. I don't want to repeat the name. They don't even know why. But you could tell them why, because we know why. Because look even in verses 10 and 11. It says that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Every knee should bow. What does that mean? You are now being humbled to the one who is Lord. You have to die of self before you will bow to anybody. You have to actually humble yourself to bow. And when you're self-absorbed and it's all about you and you have pride, you will sit there and even though you may have a superior over you that says you are to bow or to do something, you might do it because out of the fact that you want to save yourself and save your job. But in your head and in your attitude, you're saying, I am standing up even though I'm going to do it. See, Paul is writing to them, not only do you physically are going to bow, but attitudinally, you're going to be brought to the realization that Jesus' name is above all. He is Lord and Savior above all. And it says right here, Who's going to bow? Of those in heaven. Absolutely. When I get to heaven, absolutely I'm going to bow. I can't wait to worship God. I can't wait to cry and weep and give him, Jesus, a big hug. Because I am in heaven. I made it. That's easy. That will be so easy for us to bow in heaven. But look what the, continues on the verse, though. That you should bow for those on earth. That's you and I. Those are, those are us, all of us who are currently living on this earth. Breathing in and out in this body. He says, every knee should bow. to Even you and I, we are to give him lordship over our life. I know I, you want, you're saved. I know you put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and save you. You believe the only way you go to heaven is by putting your trust in Jesus and, and what he's done on the cross and he's alive at the third day he was rose from the dead. I know you know it. But has it gone past your head of knowing it and do you live it? Does your life Reflect that you bow your knee to him daily. That's the question. Not just those in heaven, it's easy. Not just those who are living, but also those who are, and of those under the earth, those who had already rejected Jesus and in hell. Those knees will also bow. 
they will be humbled. See, our humbleness will be resulting of exaltation, will be lifted up. But those in the earth, those who have already passed, those who have already rejected Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, their, their bowing of their knee is condemnation. We won't be condemned. But those who have rejected and, and already died, be, that bowing is condemnation. But look in verse 11. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So not only are you physically will bow, but as you were living in this world before you became a Christian and you won't even talk about Jesus and you don't even, don't, have not good, don't even mention that name in this household. Unless it's a blasphemy and it's a cuss word and conjecture of cuss word, that just flies out of people's mouths. But not only will you physically bow, but you will also confess with your mouth because it'll be so clear and real to you. You can't help but confess out of your mouth who Jesus Christ is. Now, I want to encourage you, my brothers and sisters, as Paul is encouraging the believers back here in Philippi. Know who Christ is in your life. Bow your life down to Christ. Surrender your Christ completely as Lord. Not just Savior, but Lord. Now and when you get to heaven. But if you're hearing my voice and you not, have not surrendered your life to, to Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, then do it now. Because you will do it, but it will be in condemnation. You'll be in hell and be separated from God for eternity. I don't want that for your life. If you really knew what the scripture said about hell, you would not choose that. Even a selfish, self-absorbed individual whose self-esteem and everything themselves, if you're in your right mind, would never want that to happen to you. You wouldn't. But if the Spirit of God right now is speaking to your heart and saying, surrender your life to me as Lord, I'll be your Savior. You can't earn it. You can't do anything for it. It's a free gift. I'm handing it to you. You just, you just have to make a decision to receive. You have to recognize, I know the Spirit touches every single one of our hearts at some point or multiple times in our life. The spirit of conviction of saying, I'm a sinner that needs to be saved. I'm a wicked man and I know I need help. I know I need to change. And I just don't know where to turn to or who to talk to. I'm telling you today, the spirit of God is saying to you, turn to Jesus, the name above all names, amen? And he'll set you free. He will set you free from your sin and give you eternal life. And joy will fill your hearts.